Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What's up, everybody? It's Soren Baker here on Unique Access with Soren Baker. Thank you for listening. Today, we have the honor and privilege of being joined by Grandmaster D. Now, everybody should know him, of course, as a member of Houdini, the DJ and occasional rapper, and did some work on the production, of course, helping things on that side of things. But the beginning of this conversation focuses on our loss of ecstasy, one third of Houdini, phenomenal artist with one of the greatest voices in rap history. And Grandmaster D also talks about how Houdini brought class to rap and how Jalil, the other member of Houdini, you know, he wrote all those great story raps. But then we also talk about Larry Smith being like a Quincy Jones. And the reason why Larry Smith is so important is because Larry Smith was Houdini's primary producer, especially on their early seminal work. Grandmaster D also talks to me about making Houdini's classic song, I'm a Ho. Houdini signing a $2 million deal with MCA Records back in the day, and how Dr. Dre, Suge Knight, and MC Hammer all wanted to sign Houdini at different points in the game. So, without further ado, please check out my interview with Grandmaster D here on Unique Access with Soren Baker, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Now, today, we have the honor and the privilege of being joined by one of the icons in rap, one of the most important members of the most important groups in rap history, Grandmaster D from Houdini. Thank you for coming through, sir. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. It's really an honor. And uh, just right off the, the top, we just uh, recently got with the, the loss of, of ecstasy from the group. So I definitely want to talk to you about that immediately. So. Yeah. Uh, Grandmaster D, what uh, were you aware that he was not doing well, or what was your knowledge um, of what was happening? Not at all. Okay. Uh, of any of any, anything, um, was he suffering from anything, or you know, I didn't know nothing about it. Okay. And where where were you when it happened, and like what was going on? Um, found out. I mean, man getting ready to go into a restaurant, me and my, my homeboy, we was going into um, Papado's and I got a phone call by a good friend of mine and he was crying over the phone. And I was like, what's wrong? What's going on? And then he, he shared the news and um, I just stopped, you know, and then tears, they started falling, you know, and I was going to the restaurant. Everybody was looking at me like I was crazy, but I had to run to the bathroom, you know. Yeah, and have you uh, have you been able to talk to or see Jalil since then? Yes, okay. I went yesterday and I, I spoke to him and um, <clears throat> he was happy to see me. He said, "What's up, fam?" And we talked briefly, but you know, I, I guess he wanted to moan, uh, moan by himself a lot, you know. But I've been checking on him, so wanted to make sure he was all right. I heard, had another few, a few of my friends that went by to check on him too. You know, but he took it really hard, and which which me and him took it hard. You know, you be around somebody and you work with them for 
close to 40 years, you know, it's like a marriage, you know. Another thing I want to shout Jalo out, man, and yo, stay strong, man. We with you. Everybody's behind you, man. We want to make sure you good. And, you know, we all go through this together. And we, we going to lay our brother the rest the right way. And um, we got God behind us, man. And a lot of people showed so much love. I want to thank all the fans that supported Houdini throughout our career and the ones that came forward and sending their condolences to, to, to the group. Uh, I, want to, I want to thank y'all. I want to thank each and every one of y'all with the messages and the posts, with the pictures, man. It means a lot to us and it means a lot to his family. And then, like I said, um, we got the post up uh, to go fund me. If, if if the dollar could be two dollars, five dollars, whatever you can do, it's 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 for for the kids now, you know, you know, for later on down the line, man. He got kids, he got grandkids. All right, I love each and every one of y'all, man. Man, it's uh, it's unbelievable because you know, obviously, I'm very removed compared to you, but I just you know, I had no idea. And then I just, my phone just started blowing up because they knew how much I love you guys. So it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, But there's a lot of um, amazing memories. And before we get to those, I wanted to, you know, with X in particular, one of the things I know from myself and then Chuck D in particular, I've talked to about this, but many people loved X's voice in particular. So what was yes. about his tone and his voice and his style uh, on the mic that made him so special? It was his deliverance. You know, he pronouncing of his words and how, how he could just say one word out, out of his mouth and you gravitate to it. And um, he was one of the first MCs to come with that voice and, and take control of the stage like he always did each night in and out. You know, when you, you saw us, you heard his voice, you knew it was Houdini. Anytime you heard a record that came on that we were on, you knew it was Houdini because his voice, you know. Absolutely. And his style of dressing, you know, matter of fact, all three of our style, but X was the one that started that dressing with the hat, the Zorro hat, the shorts and the boots. You know, at one time I was looking like, man, you going on like that? You going on stage like that? He said, yeah, this is what we're going to do. But it set a trend. You know, Houdini was Houdini. And um, we had the class in the game. We brought the class to the rap game. Yeah. Well, what what do you remember about the the hats in particular? Why did those appeal to him and then eventually all, all y'all? He wanted to be different. He wanted to be different. You know, all the rappers back that came before us or came close to the same time we did, they were all dressed like B-boys. So we wanted to, to bring that sexiness in, you know, with the gaiters, the shark skin suits, you know, or we can throw a fila suit on one night and we all have a fly fila suit on, or we throw on some Nikes. But one thing about us, when we came on, we came on with style and everybody respected us for that. And they the wait, couldn't wait for us to get on stage. And, you know, the women would, would go crazy, you know, cause like they say, born and raised the streets of Brooklyn, it's three of us and we all good looking. You know, we had that sex appeal. They called us the sex symbols of rap. That was the name they gave us because we, we were nice looking and we was dressed in fly every time. 
Well, I think two uh, cool rocks key from the Fat Boys that told me this, and I had known this from talking to Jalil and Ecstasy in particular over the years, but you guys, they always told me you guys looked at yourselves more as beyond rap. Like we were more competing with R&B or we were competing with rock. So um, given that 82, 83, 84, rap was still so new and so emerging and it had only been on record for a few years, what gave mm-hmm. everybody in the group that mentality that this is bigger than rap? We're trying to get to this bigger thing. I could say we, we look at groups that came before us, like the um, Earth, Wind & Fire and, and, you know, like the uh, Manhattans and um, all the R&B group Temptations and the Four Tops. We look at how they was coming on stage. They, they was coming on with, with the sexiness, Teddy Pendergrass. You know, they, they were dressing right to what the women was going for. And they, they looked at us with, with the classy guys. We didn't come on looking like gangsters and like we want to tear the club up. We came with the, the uh, sex appeal. And when we hit that stage, you felt the warmness. And we, we were like R&B friendly, R&B hip hop, but friendly. And, you know, we had choruses. Because back then, the raps were just talking about themselves. So when we came, we added new life to rap. You know, the music was original, the chorus was great, and, and give take my hat off to Jalil because he wrote all the incredible songs. And X was the deliverance, and Jalil was so graceful to give F, X the spotlight. So, you know, he wrote the rhymes, he could have been the lead, but he passed it to X because he knew X had that voice. And you know, Jalil had the little balance but we used to always call him an offbeat rapper. But he felt right in there, though. You know, we got the little offbeat, but X going to ride it, you know? But all together, it was a match. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely magical. No no pun intended with the early records, of course. <laughs> but um, that was something that always intrigued me, uh, you know, as a little kid and starting to understand how things really worked and stuff, that what uh, – going to London and stuff on the self-titled, uh, the first album and doing the singles before the album even came out. Were you going to London too? Was it just Jalil and X? I was part of the group, but I didn't go then. Back in that year, I was getting ready to get married. So I didn't go then. And then that's when um, Thomas Doby did Magic Swan with them in London. And um, the next one came. I went in 86. I came and, and, and that's when I put Funky Beat together with Larry Smith. But um, we toured in 83 off of the single uh, Magic Wand and Haunted House of Rock. 83, we were touring Europe. We did um, England, Germany, Belgium, Paris, France, Switzerland, Munich, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, Holland, Berlin. We went around that wall before they tore the wall down. Wow. That's mm-hmm. amazing. So with... Being that you guys were so big in Europe so early, how do you think that affected and shaped the, the direction of your guys' career compared to a lot of other artists, rap artists in particular? I really look at it, the blessing was us doing the tour in Europe first because, you know, they, they wanted hip-hop. They was loving hip-hop. Like being in Germany, we didn't know what they were saying, but they knew what they were saying in the words of the song. And... um. The next thing you know, we were, we felt it was almost like rehearsal. So we said, maybe you could slip up out here. They ain't going to know. But, um, you know, in the States, by the time you get back to the States, your show better be polished. 
So being out there doing two shows a night in the pubs or, or, or um, Hammerstein Ballroom, and the next thing you know, by the time we was ready to go to the States, after three and a half months on that tour, we was already good. We were shaped and, and polished and mold. We was ready to hit the States. We couldn't wait because the record Five Minutes of Funk and Friends was already blazing in New York and around the country, so we couldn't wait to get back. But that helped us. Yeah, because I always looked at it, you know, I was getting, this is right when I was uh, learning and understanding what rap was, really. And I would, read, you know, like everybody, I'd read all the credits and try to understand what was going on. And I was like, wait a minute, I thought they were from Brooklyn. Why are they in London recording? And I didn't think rap had even got to Europe. And it was all this stuff. It was uh, it's very interesting. And then later, understanding and appreciating how different and unusual that was, I always thought that gave you guys an advantage. So it's interesting to hear how, you know. You, you, you know, um, Jive Records, they were based in London. And we was distributed by, um, uh, um, not Zamba, Zamba Arista, McClive Davis. So they never pushed rap back then. So they didn't know we, it was going to do good because we're the first rap group that they're going to push. But we did very well. And, and um, the thing about recording in London, what I love, because if you recorded in the States, you will have everybody and mother trying to get in your studio session to hear what you got. And, you know, you might have other rap groups next door in the, in the other room. So if you didn't have them put your record out, they might steal your idea and come out with the same song before you do. So that's why it was better being in London where nobody could reach us and, and, and um, we have 24-hour lockout when nobody can come in, it's just us. And that, that was a blessing. And we was ahead of our time with the music because they was using a Fairlight computer. Nobody was using that in the States. You know, like Devo and Kraftwerk, those type of groups was using that. Connie Planks, you know, so it, it was incredible. And then that that's uh, you guys also work with Thomas Dolby, the actual Dolby sound, right? I mean, with signs, you remember that? Yeah. So, did you uh, either directly or indirectly hear or understand the difference of what he was doing musically compared to the rest of the world at the time? You, you know, when I saw Thomas Dolby, um, when like you blind me with signs, I was like, this is incredible. It's just like uh, uh, um, Sting. Sting was incredible, you know. We were torn right behind the group, The Crash. We were torn behind them, Devo, Hall of Notes. So I knew all of them were coming with different sounds. And at that time, Arthur Baker was hot, you know, with uh, Buffalo Girls and all that. And um, I was like, yo, we got to make a hard beat. We got to make it funky. And the best thing about it, we didn't sample nobody. We was original. So that's, that's what made us stand, stand tall and to have the um, dance feel. And the chorus meant a lot in those records because everybody was singing the hook. Right. And, and also, since this, uh, especially with the first album, the self-titled album, what the benefit of the, you know, Magic's Wand and, and that affiliation, how did you see that that was paying uh, dividends to help get you guys popular in New York in particular? What, what really helped us go to the next level we were the first with a rap video. Magic's gone. And Mr. Magic, may he rest in peace, he was in that video. And, um, you know, at that time, rappers wasn't getting videos. They didn't have no budget like that. 
So we came out with the Magic Wand video, and then we came with another song called Rap Machine. And we had a video for that. So we was ahead of the game. And by the time it got to um, the Freaks Come Out at Night and, and Five Minutes and Friends, man, we did a live video. No rappers were doing no live video. We did live in, in, in um, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. You know, I mean, um, it was Pittsburgh and Baltimore where the Freaks Come Out at Night, we did the live video. And at that time, only maybe rock groups were doing live videos. So for us to come out with a live video and everybody loved that song, The Freaks Come Out at Night, it was incredible. Yeah, well, I'm from Maryland. I didn't get to go to those shows. I was a little young, but uh, I do remember uh, Freaks Come Out at Night was like the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest song in, in Maryland, man. People love yeah. that song. <laughs> so, so with, um, with Rap Machine too, the interesting thing about the Houdini album is it's so, um, before we get to Larry Smith, it's so, uh, a lot of it is so much instrumental driven. Uh, yes. Which, you know, understanding stuff later I kind of got, but for you guys strategically, what made that kind of okay early on in the game? Um, well, I, I give it to Pete and Nigel out there in London. Like I said, those guys worked with a lot of big groups out there in Europe. So they were coming with that sound. And you, we was listening. You hear that sound. He's like, wow. And, you know, where y'all getting that from? And they kept us ahead of the time. And, you know, all, all we needed was the beat. Once we had that beat pounding and they add the other instruments, everything was good. You know, it was like competing. But Rap Machine took off in, in Europe first. It didn't really break big in the States, but it was big in Europe. Why did the teaming with Larry Smith end up happening and and how did that get going um well Jalo um pulled Larry Smith to the side I think at, at the fever one night club called disco fever back in the days and they they were speaking about doing some recording he kept yo Larry I need you to do this album and Larry said I gotta finish with running them and you know it was a little hesitation but next thing you know Larry said all right I'm with it let's go and and that's when it went from there. And um, Larry, to me today, never got the credit that he deserved. Larry Smith was like Quincy Jones when it comes to rap. I agree because like you said, and as I've talked about with Dana Dane and Daryl Pierce from LA Posse and a lot of other people, like people underestimate the fact that it was melody, it was no samples, and that mm -hmm. you guys had these big choruses that were very, unusual <laughs> at the time yes. and yes. and i think that enabled you guys at least to me on the outside looking in but i want to get your opinion but i think that helped get you on the radio get you in these videos because it was more traditional music format yeah you know why because the rappers back then were just making beats but it sounded like they was making it in the basement and um once we came with that on because radio wasn't touching it it wasn't playing rap. I mean, HBI was playing rap. We give Mr. Magic the credit because he started it and, and um, the Supreme team. And um, right after that, WBLS, they used to play the instrumentals, you know, or Friends or, or Five Minutes of Funk. Then it got to that point where they said, let's start playing it. And, and we had Video Music Box bumping our videos, and, and that's when it was on. It was on. And since it was so early, obviously, even though you're in the group, when uh, you got shouted out in Five Minutes of Funk, did that 
change things for you? Did people like look at you different or notice you more per se? Yeah, you know, um, once I heard my our record on the radio, I knew it was on. You know, the 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 best feeling I ever have to hear your record on the radio. Then 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 so um that's when I knew we was on our way. And all the other radio stations started playing it, but they only played selected rap, selected groups, only certain ones. They say, like, you know, Houdini is on B and hip hop. So we fit right in there. Just like on tour, you know, we did tours with Run DMC and Curtis Blow and Fat Boys and, and, and um, Beastly Boys and, and Steps of Sonic. But we left that tour and we jumped on tour with Midnight Star, Charlemagne Climax. That's when I knew we can fit on an R&B tour and we could fit on a hip hop tour. Then we went to a new edition tour. So we, we was known all over. Right. Yeah. And I think too that the, it's, it's the music, man. It was so powerful. <clears throat> it was very powerful. Um, and I think too, one thing that I think that you guys are very underappreciated for as well, and this started with the, the first album, is the stories because they were these universal themes, but were done in such a specific way that it could appeal to everybody. But everybody, you know, wasn't just a rap person. Like, you know, for me, yeah. like Big Mouth, like as a little kid, I was like, man, I hate it when people do that. But I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm a little kid in Maryland and a little white boy, but I could identify with that, you know? And that, to me, is what made the, made it so interesting but when you guys were in the studio and you would hear these stories that were coming up even rap machine or magic swan or these different things how what did you look at from a song perspective that made you be like man what we're doing is different or special on the story side of things um you know when you see other groups come up to you and like yo what did y'all use to make that you know and you sound like this y'all sound different and it became that um, being different, we always wanted different. We wanted to make party records and, and dance songs, but we wanted hooks that, you know, to be in the songs. We didn't want it to be just straight talking about ourselves. You know, we wanted the storyline, you know, and, and Jalu was good for coming up and creating that. And uh, we were the type of group your mother and father said, I don't really like that bebop stuff, but I do like Houdini. Yeah, you know, the freaks come out at night and all that, you know, it was with it. Absolutely. And then what was the st strategy on Escape for having the featuring Grandmaster D song? Well, like I said, when um, the featured Grandmaster D song, that's when I didn't go to Europe then. And Jalu said, well, D, I've been down since 82, 83. He said, we got, I'm just going to make the instrumental name feature Grandmaster D. And Larry did it, you know. Okay. Because I always thought that was a very uh, <laughs> intriguing thing on there. Um, yeah, because I'd be wanting to get that cleared because uh, recently they put up that um, I came to the group in 86. I was in this in 82, 83, you know? Yeah. I, thankfully, I didn't see that, but I would have scratched my head. Because <laughs> <laughs> Love said it. He sent it out. Yeah. Strange. Okay. But I... But, mm -hmm. uh, I also think too, the the samples. So you guys have been sampled, you know, dozens, hundreds of times. So when you first started hearing your stuff getting sampled, 
was that something you expected or was it just, you know, a shock? It was it was shock to me. You know, I always said if, if somebody's gonna sample your song, I always said that um they should give us a call. We can do it together. You know, it would feel good to reach out and say, Yeah, you knew we had a hit, but it add on, you get paid for it. So, you know, but I just always said if you're gonna do it, let's do it the right way. Everybody collaborate on it. Right. Okay. And then and then um at the end of the album, the We Are Houdini, where you guys are like shouting out Dr. Ice and Kango and everybody affiliated, I wanted you to explain like the, because one thing I think rap is so competitive on the one hand, but then there's so much camaraderie and brotherhood at the same time. So for you yeah. guys, for you guys, what was that that brotherhood or feeling that you had in that era to where you were bringing so many people to the table? Um. The main thing was we wanted to give a, a real show. So the real show was like, you know, when you talk about hip hop, you talk about graffiti, you talk about breakdancing, you talk about rapping, you know, and we added the breakdancers to the show. You know, just like when we first did the video rap machine, you saw them in, in, in the video and you saw them in the Freaks Come Out of Night video. And a lot of um, groups wasn't doing that at that time. So we was the first group with dancers. And after after that, by next year, every group had two dancers or three. So we, like we said, we set the trend, you know? Everybody's following us. Like we said, you want to lead, you don't want to follow. So you want to be ahead of the game. So we look back and say, well, Salt and Pepper had dancers. Everybody was doing the same thing. But we started it. So also with Escape leading into uh, Back in Black, these are going gold and platinum at a time when rappers aren't even really even having albums. They might have singles. <laughs> so yeah. what, um, compared to other people or just from your own experience, what did you notice about going gold or platinum, like the prestige you had, but that you also didn't get because you were rappers, I guess? Um, I would say, you know, at first, you're out there, you're torn, you're feeling good, you got money in your pocket. You ain't really thinking about it until the record company give you the call and say, yo, congratulations, you won gold. And then by the time the, the fresh press came again, we got on tour. Next thing you know, within less than 30 days, we're, we're platinum. I'm like, wow, platinum. And that was back then. You know, a lot of people today, they go platinum off a single, but that was a million copies. That's wild. Going platinum in 85, 86 is wild. Yeah. <laughs> so with uh, Back in Black, that was the time, first time on the cover of the album for you. So is that because, did you guys do all the photos for everything too in London or what was going on? Um, no, that? we came back to the States and um, we was going Back in Black we already made the record and we, we had a photo session in New York City. And my publicist, Steve Mann, um, had said, yeah, well, let's put this together. Let's get D on the cover. And, you know, Jalo okayed it and, and, and we all had a meeting and they, they went with it. And um, that was one of the biggest moments of my career. You know, a lot of times DJs just the DJs just stay behind the scene and they don't get no spotlight. But um, 
I had the chance to record Funky Beat and because, you know, at that time I was talking with Larry in the studio about the Jam Master Jay had a record out. So I said, I want my own DJ record, Larry, let's do it. And Larry said, well, D, you start on the beat and I'll take it from there. And we that's, that was the magic right there. And then I got the chance to write my own rhyme and um, came out with that. And Funky Beat hit, it hit hard. Yeah, I think that's the amazing thing about uh, Escape and Back in Black Back to Back was the having Five Minutes of Funk and Funky Beat just start off the album so powerfully. Um, mm-hmm. That Those are two, yeah. two of my favorite starts to albums in, in rap history, man. <laughs> just, back to Black and this story, Bobby, probably never heard this story. Man, we, we were going back back and forth, back and forth, me and Jalo because and, and, and the record company, because Jalou said, no, I want to put one love out. I want to put one love out. I said, man, let me tell you something. Run DMC is coming out with that King of Rock. We got to drop Funky Beat. We got to come with something hard. And, and next thing you know, the, the record company said, okay, we'll go with it. And once it dropped, that was it. That was the ticket. Yeah. And it, it uh, showed your guys' versatility because even though the albums didn't have so many songs. Within the songs, there was a, a lot of styles, sonically, stylistically, lyrically, subject matter-wise. And I think that's also something that made Houdini's and still makes Houdini so phenomenal, is that you know, with 10 songs, give or take, you guys always were coming with so many different themes. So yes. um, for you creatively, and sonically, especially as a DJ and, and doing the shows. And unfortunately, I did get to see you guys, you know, as a kid, do a few shows. But I want you to explain, like, how you guys work to put your shows together since you had so many different tempos and feels. Um, we owe we, it to New York. We had um, sound studios where we would rent out and go rehearse. We might book it for the whole week. And we would go in there and... Um, rehearse and we'll cut songs in and out, you know. We we had to know what I mean know where to place it. Song after song after song. Because after we do one love, you know five minutes of funk is coming on. So we say we're lucky just to have just one, two, three, four, and I go boom, five minutes of funk. And they go crazy. So we started off mellow like with friends and then we pick it up. And once we get to the end of the show, we we don't, we don't got y'all brought and sold. They said, Houdini rocked the house tonight because we're going to give it to you every night. You know, energy, show full of energy. Yeah, uh, that's, that's uh, definitely a hallmark of you guys. And back to, to Funky Beat with um, one thing that was great was during the shows, how you would come out and, and rap. So... What extra element did you notice that that brought to the shows? Oh man, greatest feeling in the world. You know, when they know my part is getting ready to come, the women is getting ready and the crowd is getting, you know, the brothers too. They know I'm gonna come out the rap. So, you know, like, like I said earlier, most DJs, they barely get the spotlight. So now I get a chance to rap. I was to rap before I was a DJ. So soon I come, they be ready, and everybody's rocking side to side with me. You know, last fresh fest, I'm rocking good times. And this fresh fest, I'm busting out rhymes. 
and they singing it right along with me. And you know, they shocked for a DJ to come up and get that spotlight. But every night, man, I used to come out smiling. In '86 was still, but we were about to get to the end of the of the DJ kind of being the the leader per se, because we mm-hmm. had the DJ is the foundation of the culture and was always in front for a long time. And then that started switching around this time. So mm-hmm. how, how do you think, or in your opinion, as somebody that was going through it at the time, how and why do you think that was switching? Because we had Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. We had Eric B and Rakim. We had DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. We had all these examples you know, throughout history from the 70s groups to the 80s groups. And then this was kind of the last wave of that for this year, maybe another two years. But as it was happening, what did you see was the change and why? I mean, back like you said, the DJs always was in control and they was calling the shots. So all the MCs used to just do get up there and rhyme. So that's like when they be freestyling. But the, the difference in, in, in changing it, the MCs after a while, they started taking control, you know? And, and um, I mean, I'll I give take my hat off to like the Cold Crush Brothers, Grandmaster Flat, Spirits Five, Funky Four, plus one more, and the Crash Crew. Those brothers had routines. They, I look at them as, as door openings for us, but they was ahead of their time. And they knew how, to control the crowd, you know, and, and the change, the change with the time, like just like now, they went to CD turntables, so they they went from MC in here and they took the the um, vinyl away and went into the CD turntables. But I don't use CD turntables; I use vinyl. There's nothing like feeling that vinyl, you know. But um, yeah, it changed. It changed. Okay. And then I remember, too, uh, the I'm a Ho song being so dramatic because <laughs> that was such a, a different way to look at things, uh, looking at the man like that. So do you remember when you guys recording it or the writing of it? Like, whoa, this is, <laughs> like, what is this? Yeah. I was like, Larry, you crazy. Yeah. And, and he said, no, we're doing this. And he put it out. You know, but that record was number one in, in, in Dallas, Texas. I remember they booked us for the show. They said, yo, that's the number one song out here. I said, what? Yep. And they used to go, I'm a hmm. You know I'm a hmm on the radio. Yeah. Dallas, Texas, man. Wow. And that was also, especially at that time, one of the early uh, examples for Houdini of being a little more, quote unquote, risque, I guess, lyrically. So yes. what, what made... Uh, all you guys and Larry Smith even comfortable to kind of push that boundary? Man, Larry was a guy to take chances. He didn't care. He didn't care. If it sound good and it's bumping and, and the lyrics is there, that's it. He said, let's go with it. Forget it. Let's go with it. Okay. And that became one of my records. No, nah, that, that was a smash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then also on the album was Growing Up, mm-hmm. which you know, it was very uh, positive messages and about not giving up and different things. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that I think tied in well to, I think kind of the appeal of Houdini was a lot of the positivity yeah. and, you know, even mm-hmm. one, uh, even one love is being thankful, you know? So 
what lyrically and stylistically made that the angle you guys like to pursue? Well, what happened with that is you got to look at, um, it was a, a big uh, problem with drugs in New York. So when we put that out, they say, let's, let's do something, a song that will get these people attention and, and really tell them to stop using drugs. And we did a campaign with the mayor, you know, in, in New York. And um, we went down to City Hall. Everybody came down and, and um, wound up doing the video. We had Lawn Swiss burning in it. We had Carl Payne. And um, it was a great video. They had it in all the schools, you know, so they know the drugs who need it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very positive thing. And this is something that I always am uh, intrigued about because in this era of rap and even for the next couple of years, we still, the artists were very clear that they were uh, anti-drug, don't do drugs, this is bad. And this is, yeah. you know, Melly Mel saying it. This is you guys saying it. This is, uh, you know, even Eazy-E and N.W.A. were saying, <laughs> you know, it was uh, EPMD, Public Enemy. There were so many people, Rob Bass. And then, mm -hmm. obviously, it switched a few years later. But I also know at the same time, of course, a lot of people were using the drugs behind the scenes, you know, in their own lives. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how, how do you think that that balance of some people it was very positive, but a lot of people were dealing, you know, with, with their own demons behind the scenes. How do you think they were able to kind of keep that separate? I mean, you know, I'm not gonna hide nothing. You know, back then, everybody back in the 80s had dealt with it a little something. You know, it was like, almost like a social drug, you know? And if you'd be in a, a club like the Roxy's or, or, or Studio 54, you come in there, you see everybody doing a little something in there. But that's the it was going on. It was the end thing. But, you know, after a while, you see what it's done to people to take you out of here. So, you know, after that, you push that to the side. It's time to go forward, you know? Right. Okay. And then uh, the, the good part, I thought, was Back in Black was a, granted, it's not the last with the Mega Mix, but it was like toward the end of the album. And every, it was the end of the album to me, really. But... Uh, that was another one of those like feel good, feel good moments. And I wanted to explain like on a performance side, but also on a music side, like you were saying, Run DMC was so hard by comparison. LL was so hard by comparison. You guys were different. How, how, um, even though rap was trending harder, how did you guys feel like, you were able to sustain this this vibe for so many years and keep it going. Um, we owe it to the fans. It was big supporters, and you know they brought our albums, and um, we had to do so much promotion. We had to do in stores and in the malls, record shops, you know, and we had to please everybody, you know. And um, hard work. When you got hard work, and you're doing hard work, your record is going to sell. You know, today, these guys, they might do a little bit, but a lot of them don't even go to the radio station. They're just doing it off the internet. We didn't have the internet back then. So you had to do the promotion yourself. A lot of legwork, a lot of footwork. Right. And I think, too, when we get to Open Sesame, that legwork clearly had paid off at that point. But also with Millie Jackson, like, oh, as a kid, yourself. 
Yeah. I got to get my plug because my phone made me go there. Yeah, um, Millie Jackson was incredible on that song. Yeah, and I was, you know? uh, because of course, A, there weren't that many collaborations in 87 at that point, but on top of that, yeah. uh, you know, I guess Shaka Khan was probably the biggest one with Feel For You, but um, what, what was it like for you guys to actually be able to do that collaboration? Oh, it was incredible. We were so happy. We were just happy too to get another video. <laughs> That's what I was feeling. You know, we have Millie Jackson on it. We got another video. We're going to sell some records. And, and we wouldn't go. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that to me, huh? that to me is one of the amazing things to come out in 82 and then album in 83 and still be going gold in 87, which was yeah. an eternity in rap in particular. To me, was mm -hmm. uh, it was so crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it, but it was all, it was all good. It felt good, especially to get your plaque. You know, absolutely. I, mm -hmm. I, I got a few out of thanks, but I, I didn't get one for making them. <laughs> so, <laughs> where you get it from? Man, I got, uh, I got a lot actually. I got uh, Noriega, I got uh, Scarface, uh, Do or Die, oh. Little John, India Ari. I got, I got quite a few. Wow, I got a lot. That's incredible. Yeah, man, I got Yin Yang Twins. I got a whole bunch. So oh, okay, so yeah. you're good to go. Yeah, I got a lot. You look like MC. You look like MCA Records, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah. Nappy Roots gave me one. I got so many, man. I got so many. Yeah. It's a blessing, man. Like you to be able to. Yeah, do you play a big part. Yeah, to 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 do what you love and then to be appreciated for it is an amazing feeling. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Man, you mean a lot to hip hop. Well, thank you. That means a lot coming from you. So thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um now with with Open Sesame, that that is the, the last album on Jive, of course. So what you guys had a huge run, first uh rap group to go platinum, had so many, you know, several gold albums, hit records, toured around the world early in the game. So Mm -hmm. Did your contract just run out? Did you guys not agree artistically anymore? Like, what's happening? Yeah, we, we, we just, you know, called it quits with them. You know, it wasn't going for us no more. And they figured it, you know, Jalo was writing. They wanted him to write. And Jalo felt, you know, they, they owed more advance. And um, they didn't want to come through. So he said, well, we're going to move on. And then we moved on. That's when we went to um, MCA Records. Right. And, and what, that was a big jump. But go ahead, I'm sorry. I said that was a big jump to go to MCA Records. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it, was a major, it was a major label. And at that time, we went and we signed for $2 million. You know, at that time, and no rappers was getting no money like that. But then we had the problem because the pop division signed us. And then we had to go to the to, to the R&B side. And they were like, well, you signed them. Y'all should push them. So I knew it was going to be a problem then. Because then you got to think about they got Patti LaBelle getting ready to come out. You got New Edition getting ready to come out. You got Bobby Brown getting ready to come out. I said, uh oh, I think we're getting ready to get shelved. And we got one video out of it. And that was it. Well, uh, 
that leads me to a lot of questions, but one thing that you've mentioned and that I know and remember was how important videos were to sell records. And I think yes. a, lot of, a lot of people now, because videos are, and songs are so easy to make, they don't mm -hmm. understand or appreciate the impact of a video. So mm -hmm. I wanted you to explain, granted that was 91 with Bag of Tricks, but in the early to mid eighties, through all the way through Open Sesame, how significant and what you noticed the videos did that put you guys in a different stratosphere? Um, like I said before, we were before our time because groups wasn't getting videos. If they did get one, they might have had a single and it was buzzing a little bit, so they gave them a little cheap video. Man, we had the works. We got like, I think it was two videos and they gave gave us a discount. I think two videos for like 35,000 back then. And and that was One Love. And that's when we did um, Freaks Come Out at Night. So we, we was good for two videos. And um, that's when they really got a chance to see the group. You know, now you see us on screen. Used to seeing some concerts. Now you see us on screen, but we owe it to BET. BET really pushed us, and Video Music Box, Ralph McDaniels pushed us because back then, um, MTV wouldn't play R&B. Just be straight up, they wouldn't play black videos. I was gonna say, then. it was bigger than just R&B. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we had to be somebody like uh, uh, one of the rock groups to get played. Yeah, they, they wouldn't play us. Well, but they played Run DMC. The first two records in particular, uh, Houdini and Escape, in the sense that one thing I've noticed and I've talked to other artists about it, and since this happened with you guys, I was also interested. Granted, there was and still is, of course, a lot of racism in the United States and around the world. But one, one thing that I thought was interesting and I've noticed is that a lot of the early rap, including you guys, became great with mixing of cultures like you guys were in europe and creating this amazing music that wouldn't have happened maybe because of they had an idea or they said oh try this mix or try this music or whatever so what yeah. um and and you guys like you said you were locked down you weren't around all your all your homies trying to come in the studio session like 30 people or whatever so yeah what um, do you think of the mixing of the cultures and the music backgrounds and all these different things helped rap or changed it in ways that it wouldn't have changed if it was just, you know, all your friends or just people you knew or whatever? Well, I really think um, we changed it from out the gate because we gave you something that was R&B, it was hip hop, it was danceable, it can play in the clubs and you also get played on radio. And it was friendly. It wasn't offending nobody. It was just making good music and making great lyrics. And like I said, we was in a class by ourselves. That's what made us different. And um, we didn't follow nobody. We just want what we wanted to do and, and to make the best songs. And Larry Smith knew how to make Run DMC sound like Run DMC. And he knew how to make Houdini sound like Houdini. That's what the blessing is. And that's what you call a real producer who can separate it and don't make you sound the same. Sometimes you can see a producer like Babyface. Now he might produce four or five different groups, but I guarantee you three of them groups is gonna sound the same. 
That is Sounds familiar, am I right? That is very true, very true. Yeah. But that, that, to your point, speaks to his brilliance and to be able to do it with no blueprint because there was that wasn't yeah. happening at the time. Uh, yeah. So, so back to MCA, after um, with Jive and everything being so successful uh, as a person, as a creative person, as an artist, like what was it like now being in this big system and you're not getting the attention, you're not getting the adulation, you're not getting what was happening to you guys internally? We, we felt sh shut out. Felt like you was just gonna get shelved. We heard this happen before the other groups, but we didn't think it was gonna happen to us. Once they sent us to California to do a video, I said, oh, they are gonna make this happen for us. And slowly, slowly but surely, it started changing. And I said, here we go. One video and that's it. They didn't push it no more. Yeah. And what what also, obviously, Fred Gordon did a lot of the record and Larry Smith did some. Yeah. What was the move yeah. to have Fresh Gordon do more of the record than Larry? Well, at that time, you know, we had more access to um, Fresh Gordy because he's right there in Brooklyn. And um, Gordy had some incredible beats. He's another guy that was before his time. And um, I, I used to go to his house, so I said, yo, let's get Gordy on some tracks. And then Gordy jumped on board. And um, he, he's incredible. And I still think he is. And once he get back started again, it's going to be going to be a lot of hell out here, boy, because Gordy's incredible. Yes, he is. He's done a lot of great work. He's another, like Larry Smith, that's done a lot that doesn't yeah. get a lot of attention. Um, You're definitely right. So definitely shout out to Fresh Gordy for that. Um, yeah, Fresh Gordy. Gordy Groove. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was a, a short stay with MCA, at least record-wise, but uh, to me, it was really good uh, that Jermaine Dupri reached out and then ended up working with you guys on the sixth record, given that you guys had you know, yeah. giving him an early shot in the game. <laughs> um, so, but, all right, because, yo, but even right before that, you got to think about it, Chuck D came. Yeah, it the, all come down to money. The Terminator X. Yeah, it all come down to money. Big shout out to Chuck D, Public Enemy. And that that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the great things that I know personally, but I've also seen from afar that Chuck was always often and regularly reaching out to people that came before him, that people came out around mm -hmm. him or a little after him to give opportunities that maybe wouldn't happen otherwise. So how did you guys, yes. how did you guys notice being on that Terminator X project? How that, you Well, know, they, we give the credit to Chuck D and, and, and Terminator X. They, they reached out to us and uh, um, got together with them to do that song and we needed a record at that time. We felt shut, shut out. We felt shut, shut out the business. And um, once we came with it and we got a video and it was on Def Jam, you know, it was a blessing. It, it was a hell of a blessing because I, I felt now we back again. You know, and they gave us some pushing. A lot of people had love for the record, but then right after that, it was a short lived, but we loved Chuck for reaching out for us. You know, and I know that obviously Public Enemy, since they came out, has been touring around the world 
And I also know, yeah. or if I remember correctly, it did seem like that gave you guys some extra good uh, show boost again. You guys were yeah, yeah. <laughs> able to get some shows and uh, Terminator yeah. X in the Valley, the Jeep beats. <laughs> Very, uh, <laughs> yeah, we got, we had got some more gigs and it started picking up again. And that was a blessing that we had a chance to eat again. Yeah. And that, that, uh, did that directly or indirectly you think get Jermaine to think about you guys again, or was that already in motion? Yeah, he, he knew about the song, but you got to give him credit because X, X reached out to him. X spoke to him and, um, you know, they had a long conversation and next thing you know, it was like we going over to social death. Okay. And obviously you guys have known him since the eighties. <laughs> uh since, yeah. he's, since he was the a little guy with the cherry curls, right? Yeah, since he was a little kid. So then being around him and looking at him as this huge producer, executive, all these different things, what were you guys able to learn from him at that point? Um to me I learned that he, he oh man. I learned that he grew up. And he learned a lot, you know, and um, he was working hard. And um, he came out with that crisscross and that opened the door for him. So right after that, he was in the game. And um, the reach back for us meant a lot, you know, because at that time, nobody was going to reach out for us. No, everybody turned their backs, really. But I think at one point, Dr. Dre was going to try to get us. It was either Dr. Dre or it was Suge Knight. It was going to try to um, sign us. Then you had MC Hammer wanted to do something with us too. But um, we had went to Jermaine. Yeah, I remember when Hammer signed Dougie Fresh. That was a big move too. So that was yeah, 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 yeah. So what did, uh, did you guys or whatever happened with the Dr. Dre, Suge Knight thing? Did it ever materialize to talks or just? No, nah, it was just, it was just talk, you know, and, and, you know, after Jermaine, we had worked, X had to work with Jermaine, and that was it. He said, okay. yo, we're going to uh, social death. Okay. And did that make all of you guys move to Atlanta, or had you already relocated? Yeah. We, we had went to Atlanta, all of us. Yeah. Okay. Before that? Yeah. Before that, we was in New York. No, I'm saying, did you move to Atlanta because you were on yes. social death? Okay. Yeah. Once we got on social death, we moved to Atlanta. Now, this was uh, in the mid-90s, a magical time in Atlanta. I was uh, going down to Freaknicks. My friends were at Clark. Uh, patchwork was just coming up and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what, what do you remember about the vibe and the feel of Atlanta in that 95, 96, 97 era? Freaknik? Just all Man, it, was, it was bananas down here. Man, it was like a... Uh, a script fest in the street. They was dancing on top of cars, open vans, and they got thongs on and all kinds. It was just crazy. It was wild. They would stop cars on, on the freeway and dancing, and it was just crazy. But they, they were like, every time they left, them hotels and everybody was like, we don't want them people back here. They was terrorizing. Yeah. I'm, I, I got a lot of great photos from those times. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs> I was there. Yes, I, yeah. I was there. But it was just amazing that, uh, you know, everybody was moving down there. You know, you guys were there. Too Short was there. Eric Sermon had moved there. 
MC Breed had mm-hmm. moved there. It was just so many people. Yeah. In addition to all the people that were coming out that were from there, from there, it was just yeah. Too yeah. short moved here. Yeah, yeah. it was so many, of- so many people. So then mm-hmm. I know you guys had continued doing shows and doing a, a lot of different things, but I also wanted to get into stuff you're working on now. I know with Abu, you got a, a single. This yes. is time for a new rap style, and you guys are still yes. still making moves. So how did that single come about? Well, um, Abu Valor, big shout out to him. He, he should be watching. Um, he gave me a call one night and he said, yo, Drew, I got, I got a tune and uh, I want you to hear it. So he played it for me over the phone and, and I said, yo, that's a hit, that's a hit. And he said, all right, he said, I'm gonna send it to you. And when he sent it to me, he had his rap on it. So I said, yo, I wanna rap on this, I wanna rap on it. So I took it in the studio and they laid down my verse and got it back to him, and we was ready to go. He was ready to roll with it. Yeah. And, and given your history, your career, your legacy, how do you take all that to put into the new stuff that you're working on now? Like, what have you learned that you're able to really see and apply differently? Um, like I said, we're not recording in Europe anymore, so we're going to be recording here in the States. So we just try to hope we don't get the low budget in, you know, but uh, we're going to make the best of it. But my thing is, we're going to go hard. We're going to go all the way and, and like time for a new rap style. But we got so much more to come and we just want to be different. You know, we just want to be different and we want to um, try to get the people dancing again, partying, ain't nobody standing on a wall looking like hard rocks. We wanted to get them on the dance floor and, and make them happy again. Yeah. Okay. And then what are some of the next things that you're working on that people should be looking out for in addition to that? Uh, um, it's going to be storytelling, you know, but it's, it's going to be family friendly. And, you know, we're going to give the people something to really relate to and, and really think about, especially with this um, hard times right now. We don't lost so many people. I feel it's time for a change. It's time time to make a difference, you know, and, and time to give the people, you know, the real good music and the real good lyrics and, and some to relate to. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and then how, you know, since it is the modern era, how, how do you want people to get in touch with you or find you online? Oh, you can find me at uh, Grandmaster D on Instagram or Drew, um, Drew GMD Carter, that's Facebook, and uh, Grandmaster D on, on um, Twitter. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Grandmaster D, we really appreciate you coming through the Unique Access, man. Thank you. It's an honor. All right. Yeah. And um, thank you for the love, and Thank you for having me. And um, y'all go cop that song, man. Time for a new rap style. What up, Abu Valor? You know, and I say, like, Keep unity in the community because without unity, we won't have a community. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to Unique Access with Soren Baker. I appreciate your guys' support. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and however you guys checked out this episode of Unique Access with Soren Baker. Also, if you haven't already, please pick up the copies of my two most recent books, 
The History of Gangster Rap, and The Gucci Man Guide to Greatness with Gucci Man. You can find both of those books on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, at the independent bookstore near you. And of course, you could also check them out at your library. And if any of those places don't have them, please request them. And most importantly, thank you so much for listening to Unique Access with Soren Baker, however you listen to us. And please subscribe so we get into your feed. Hit us with that like and hit us with the five stars, 10 stars, 100 stars, whatever's the highest they got on this platform. But we appreciate your guys' support and look forward to you checking us out on the next episode.